Welcome to Twin Peaks Cinema. This episode launches a new three-month season with the theme, Ray's Haunted 50s. These are three Nicholas Ray films from the 1950s, a period that certainly influenced David Lynch a lot. One of these films, I think, in particular is a kind of touchstone for his cinema, although there's elements of all of them that uh, feature in his work. And, of course, we're going to focus specifically on Twin Peaks and uh, how it shaped the show, the film, the new season, and all of that. We're going to do this in chronological order. So the first one is on Dangerous Ground, an early 50s film, still kind of lingering flavor of the 40s, black and white, noir. Um, This is a... A, uh, a film that takes us from the city to the countryside, and we'll talk about that a lot. I'm actually going to share my written review uh, of the film. I thought that would be a good way to uh, introduce the, uh, the subject before we get into the Twin Peaks connection, so I'm going to read that sort of archive piece before I do more of an impromptu commentary on it. Now, before we get to that, just an update on my other podcast activity. I've continued the Lost in Twin Peaks podcast throughout the summer, just keeping up with it, chugging along, uh, covering season three. So these are uh, daily episodes. Each week is a different, covering a different part of the season. Uh, so I did, uh, since, since the last update that I offered on this feed, I finished part five, I did part six, seven, eight, nine, and I'm now in the middle of part ten. And uh, the way this works is I have episodes sort of on different aspects of it. So I'll talk about the scenes that take place in the town, the scenes that take place outside of the town. I talk about current events going on at the time and you know other things like that. The part eight episode was unique in that I had guests on. Uh, Em and Steve from the No Ship Network uh, podcasts where they did a Sparkwood in 21, a Twin Peaks podcast back in around like 2015 to 17. And these were all recorded years ago, and I've been re-editing them, presenting them in Illustrated Companions on my site with screenshots for every category and all that. So very time-consuming, even though the work should theoretically already be done. But I'm keeping up with it for now, hopefully going to continue through September when it's the fifth anniversary of the Season 3 finale. I was also a guest on a podcast called Uncut Gems. They had me on to discuss Firewalk with me. So we had a group discussion multiple perspectives on that film people who were very into it and familiar with it people had some issues with it and went back and forth and answered some questions uh, just a pretty dynamic uh, conversation over two hours so definitely check that out as well all of these of course are linked in the show notes if I run out of room as I sometimes do you can follow the link to my site where I'll have the cross post and you can see all the links there as well on my lost in the movies feed I uh, started a new season there where I'm focusing on classic Hollywood. So the first film was Swing Time, the Astaire Rogers musical. And I also uh, posted a new Twin Peaks Conversations for June, where I talked to Cameron Cloutier, the director of the Twin Peaks fan film Queen of Hearts, which is about Annie Blackburn, everything that uh, might happen to her after season three slash Firewalk, or after Firewalk with me slash season two. Um, but with many ideas from season three brought in. It's quite an ambitious work. We had a great conversation, spanned uh, an hour in the public part on YouTube and then on Patreon for the $5 a month tier, 
we continued for another two and a half hours. So quite a lot of discussion there. Also on Patreon for the dollar a month tier, I put out my monthly updates podcast, just keeping people up on what I've been working on, what I've been watching, listening to in terms of podcasts. And I had a film in focus, which was The Power of Nightmares, where I talked for, you know, I think 15 to 20 minutes. In this case, it was actually uh, over a half hour on the film, The Power of Nightmares, film slash series, depending what you want to call it, Adam Curtis documentary about the war on terror from the early 2000s. Quite a lot to dig into there. And then in addition, there was uh, some quick capsules on King Kong versus Godzilla in the line of fire. I talked about political shifts, the Iraq war, and I read my archive uh, from the archive piece, uh, an American in Paris, which I, was a review I wrote around the same time that I wrote uh, this review of On Dangerous Ground. So using that as a segue, let's jump right in to On Dangerous Ground, kicking off Ray's Haunted 50s. Yes, he's lived with corruption all his life, breathing the evil stench wherever he walks. Alluring arms can't touch him. Bribing hands can never reach him. Only the worst can he see in people. And only violence can satisfy the hate inside of him. Until one day, a dangerous manhunt leads him to the strangest woman he has ever met. My brother's name's Danny. I know he has to be caught. But if Frank catches him, he'll kill him. With you, he'd be safe. Please, promise me he'll be safe. Put that knife down and come with me, Danny. You know my name? You're coming in, don't come in, I'll cut you. On Dangerous Ground is a film that I reviewed before, back in 2011. And I'm going to read that review as an introduction to the film, and then I'll discuss the Twin Peaks connections. This was published on September 7, 2011. On Dangerous Ground. This is an entry in the Cinema Viewfinder Nicholas Ray blogathon. It contains spoilers. Sometimes a man must go to Siberia to find his soul. In 1849, Fyodor Dostoevsky, a young man already accomplished and acclaimed as a writer, was sentenced to death. He and his co-conspirators prepared to die, to become martyrs for the cause of liberalism, crushed in the reactionary repression following the failed revolutions of the previous year. It was to be a brutal end, but a noble one. However, the Tsar had something else in mind. Almost the entire year passed before Fyodor and his co-conspirators were marched out on a raw, brutally freezing December morning. A cutting wind howled through the sight of the execution, obscuring the officer's orders and perhaps making it seem as if God himself was cutting down these youthful rebels. The orders were given. The masks dropped over the prisoners' faces. The guns lowered. And then, nothing. The entire execution had been a cosmic joke, and the prisoners were to be sent east to toil in hard labors for several years. Some praised their deliverance. Others resented their chains. A few went mad. Dostoevsky, already a talented artist, became a genius and a deeply spiritual man. In a sense, he had died and was born again, discovering the bedrock of his self in the wilderness, like Jesus emerging from the desert after forty days. On Dangerous Ground begins with another journey into the wilderness, a breathtaking vista viewed through the windshield of a car chugging along the dirt road. At first, the view is obstructed by a gang of vehicles cluttering up the path, 
doing some sort of construction work. An appropriate enough image, as Jim Wilson, Robert Ryan, a cop with a chip on his shoulder, is voyaging into the countryside to construct a new identity for himself, or rather to build upon, repair, and strengthen the foundations of the identity he already has. He doesn't know this, of course, but the filmmaker certainly does. As Wilson clears the construction crew, the vista opens up before him, and all we see of the driver are his eyes, reflected back in a rectangular mirror. A favorite motif of Nicholas Ray's, the same shot kicks off in a lonely place. Now that we're in the belly of nature, the mirror is not crowded in by headlights or street lamps, but seems to float eerily in the sky, amidst the mountains, as if Wilson is already starting to become one with the elements. I said that the movie begins with this journey, but it does not open with it. Indeed, for the first half hour or so, the film is an entirely urban noir, with Wilson a classic anti-hero, a pro who knows how to do his job, yet gets a special pleasure from beating on the crooks and lowlives whom his work throws his way. His partners worry for his mental health, his boss frets over potential lawsuits, and yet it's worth noting that Wilson is very good at what he does. While his co-workers bellyache about sore shoulders and daydream about their wives and kids back home, Wilson spends even his free time focusing on the streets. He lives alone, humbly but neatly. He carefully empties his plates after a meal, but then throws them into a small bathroom-like sink to clean. Unlike his partners, who are introduced kissing their wives or watching a television show, he is studying lineup pictures while he eats. He professes to hate his job, blames it for his psychological stress, and washes his hands bitterly when he gets home from work, but its pressure and agony seem to be all that remind him he's human. When his violent outbursts threaten the department's reputation, Wilson is finally sent into a temporary exile. Just over a hundred years after Dostoevsky's banishment, Wilson is told politely that there's a murder case up north, and he's been assigned to help out the locals. Siberia, growls Wilson. And so it is. Much has been made of this film's dichotomy, the way its change in story structure, ambiance, and physical locale reflect a growing change in Wilson himself. And yet, in a sense, he never changes. The self he already was merely comes into sharper focus. Each character he meets in the case, which quickly assumes the character of a chase and never loses it until the climax, is a reflection of himself, or one aspect of himself. First, there's Walter Brent, Ward Bond, the ferociously aggressive father who wants to avenge his baby's death and drown his own grief in the blood of her killer. He is a clear exaggeration of Wilson's own tendencies, so much so that in relation to Brent, Wilson suddenly becomes the cool, composed one. He hasn't changed, but his environment has, and so we view and appreciate a new aspect of his persona. And then we meet Mary Malden, Ida Lupino, a blind girl living alone in an isolated cabin. On an open plain in the shadow of the ominous mountains, she seems the most vulnerable character in the film, even more so than her brother, the young and mentally confused killer whom she is protecting from, her pursu- from his pursuers. She begins to open up to Wilson, so that we can see his softer side, sensing that there is no malice in this young woman, he shields her from Brent's outbursts and gently guides her into a confession. The confession leads to the discovery of Danny Malden, Sumner Williams, who is hiding out back with a knife, terrified of what the strangers will do to him, and seemingly unable to grasp what he himself has done. Wilson will talk to him in a way that probably no other character could, with a voice of authority, but also comfort. He almost leads Danny to surrender before Brent comes barging in, leading to an escape and pursuit that ends when Danny plummets from a cliff. Here the narrative, already unusual in its focus on human interaction, rather than hard-boiled detective work, although the two turn out to be the same, 
becomes even stranger. Brent softens at the sight of the dead Danny, murmuring, He was only a boy, and volunteers to gingerly carry the corpse of his daughter's killer to a neighbor's. Wilson and Mary discuss what she will do now. With her brother not yet in the ground, Mary seems already resigned to his absence. Wilson departs, unable to convince Mary that she should see a doctor who may be able to restore her sight, and he goes back to the city, established by a weird dissolve in which he and the car seem not to have traveled through any space or time, and yet the landscape outside the windshield shifts from one world to the next. The lights of the skyscraper hover half-translucent on the twilight mountainous horizon, as if the city is being approached in a dream rather than reality. Wilson recalls his supervisor's admonitions about living in the world without a heart, and then, with another dreamlike dissolve, we are back at Mary's house. In the film's most controversial passage, Wilson enters, Mary comes down the stairs, and they reach towards each other, grasping hands as the movie draws to a surprise happy ending. Ray supposedly hated this studio-imposed conclusion, and may not have even shot it himself. Nonetheless, it is the proper ending for a film that has always been more psychodrama than realistic police procedural. Brent was the side of Wilson most pronounced in the opening third of the movie. The aggression divorced from any sense of restraint or logic. Masculinity is the pure drive of the hunter without the tact. Mary is, in a sense, Wilson's anima his feminine principle in its highest aspect, one of wisdom for inner emotional vulnerability combined with a need for self-reliance and stoicism, she is the strongest character in the movie. Danny is also a part of Wilson, the fear and confusion and sense of helplessness from which all of his anger and aggression arises. He is the shadow, the one Wilson must confront and lure out into the light of day to become whole once again. Seen this way, the reunion of Mary and Wilson is necessary on a symbolic plane, if not a literal one, and indeed that dissolve, along with the simplified mise-en-scene resulting from Ray's disengagement, suggests to the viewer that this is not happening in, quote, reality. Even as he failed to protect Danny or help Mary, the detective was able to submerge his own recklessness, balance the various pulls on his personality, intelligence, emotion, and physicality are all marvelously integrated as he closes in on the killer, and emerge a wiser, if sadder, man. Maybe he will continue to be alone, but he will no longer be alienated from the world, or, more importantly, from himself. In that sense, the exile to Siberia achieved its purpose after all. On Dangerous Ground is a wonderful film, maybe Ray's best, because it so perfectly foregrounds the way he was able to take genre conventions and apply an emotional intensity so heated that the conventions crack at the seams. The film breaks open when Wilson goes to the country, this is not just a transformation of style, but a completely different film in its mood, tone, and approach. It's easy to see why the French auteurs cotton to it, not just Truffaut and Shoot the Piano Player, whose snowy climax seems a blatant tribute to Ray, but Godard in the moody rusticality of the suburbs in Band of Outsiders. Those were films of a more hopeful, if still melancholy, time. One film ends tragically, the other does not, but both impart a burst of youthful energy. Perhaps Ray wanted his own snowy psychodrama to end pessimistically because of his and his world situation in the early 1950s. Like the repression of Dostoevsky's time, the anti-communism and informant culture of Ray's period had crushed an idealism of the past and left a generation rudderless and confused, left to their own devices without the cause or the community to hold them up. The source of Wilson's own angst is never examined, 
but maybe for Ray, it was the sense of being thrust into the wilderness with no more compass and no companions, his marriage had just ended, and only himself to fall back upon. The detective in the film is on a quest, but it's not the one he thinks he's on, nor the one we in the audience perhaps expect. The dangerous ground upon which he stands is not external, but internal, the ground of his own psyche, a Siberia which Ray knows all too well, and one which he had the unusual and brilliant gift to unlock for us, a region of profound spiritual unrest and uncanny beauty. So that was my piece on on Dangerous Ground from 10 years ago, and I'm glad I read it because there's a lot of stuff in there that I thought of at that time that didn't occur to me now, so kind of revisiting it brings that back up. Now, I made plenty of comparisons in there, French New Wave, obviously, to Dostoevsky, uh, and now it's time to move on to the Twin Peaks connections here. So first of all, just touching on sort of the most superficial elements, um, maybe with some emotional depth to them, but things that are apparent right away. There's the grieving family. When the detective arrives in town, uh, we spend a moment in the Brent house before uh, the Ward Bond character comes storming in and kind of takes over from there. We see the children crying in the corner, a girl in a daze holding on to, uh, to holding on to like a corner of the, of the wall and the mother sweeping them up and taking them, pushing them away. We've, we've had enough talking today and, and just this sense of overwhelming devastation enveloping this community. And even when the detectives pulling in, there's characters running to and fro. They're on some sort of hunt through the snow and, I think in this, we really get a sense of like a stranger emerging into a place that is just consumed with grief, which is very much the case in Twin Peaks. There's also a cabin um, sort of in the woods, although, again, she's more the Mary's cabin is more out on like a, a snowy plain under the mountains. This is a much more open rural environment than Twin Peaks. Um, I think Twin Peaks is sort of both. It's got that closed you know, woods surrounding and closing in on you sense, but also the soaring mountain and these kind of shots looking out over the whole landscape. So it has a bit of both. This feels more open overall. Uh, it was actually shot in Colorado. Uh, I feel like maybe it's supposed to be New York. I, I'm not sure what city they're in in the beginning, but um, there was a shot that looked a little like Times Square, but, it, you know, could be anywhere. Um, it's sort of an every city, every country type scenario. The book w- that it's based on was written... Uh, it takes place in the UK, so they transported it to America and shifted it around. Another shot, just again, touching on sort of superficial iconography, but uh, there were, there was a shot inside, I believe it's inside Mary's house, um, I think upstairs where he goes looking um, to see if her brother is up there and finds his room, and there's like all these toys and trinkets on the shelf, which reminded me very much of Nadine with all of her figurines on the shelf, somebody who is sort of in a bit of a fantasy, living away from the world. Uh, in this case, more the brother than uh, his blind sister, because he's, you know, not not emotionally stable, obviously mentally ill, and uh, it sort of has this retreat into his own inner world. Now, as for the main uh, the the main character, Wilson, the cop, he has a very Richard temperament to me. Thinking of the character that Cooper becomes at the end of season three. Uh, stern, violent where necessary. He's more excessively violent at times, but he he generally has like a slightly sour, hard-headed disposition. 
Um, it's interesting that the characters react so negatively to him. The other cops like, Hey man, you're a, cause he's not like over the top. Like Robert Ryan doesn't play this as I described in that review. He's not like, you know, insane, out of control, throwing people around every which way. He's just sort of hard determined. And that's how he goes about his job. And uh, so in that, he very much reminded me of the character that Cooper becomes. Interestingly, this is the character starting this way, as far as we're concerned. Uh, he's also known as a, he's he's his title is officially special officer, which I, I thought was interesting, given, you know, Cooper as the special agent. And when he goes out to the country, he drives over a bridge, he drives under these mountains. We get sort of that same sense of Cooper approaching town in the pilot and maybe again later on with Carrie at the end of part 18, uh, retracing that journey he made at the beginning of Twin Peaks at its end. And it made me think what if Twin Peaks opened in the city? Like I almost, this movie almost makes me imagine like an alternate Twin Peaks pilot where like we're, we're with Cooper on the job and then we're getting used to this guy as like a city slicker. I don't think he would be acting the way Wilson does, but you know, his, his normal sort of life, like we see a little bit, little hint of in Firewalk with me where he's in the FBI office and then he gets the call, um, sort of like we do, I guess, in the, uh, the Diane, the tapes of My Life, My Tapes of Agent Cooper and also the, uh, the audio book, both written by Scott Frost, where we, we do get to know Cooper as this worldly city detective with his dark past in Pittsburgh and then he gets to go to this wooded uh, rural retreat where a murder has a much more profound emotional effect than the everyday kind of grime and cynicism that he's dealing with. And that gives him an opportunity to have some sort of rebirth and possibly psychologically integrate himself. So because Twin Peaks isn't told in that way, unless we read the books and uh, listened to the tapes first, uh, we don't get that same impression. But it's interesting to think how these characters kind of, in that sense, do follow this similar template there. Uh, I also like the fact that when he goes out to this this rural location, this small town, it's like the snowy season. Every you know, everywhere is white on the ground. They're following footprints in the snow, and I always think about how I would love if we ever got more Twin Peaks of any variety for it to take place in the dead of winter. Um, you know, Twin Peaks does begin in February, but it's more misty and foggy than it is you know snowy and freezing cold. So. It would. I always think it would be cool to see Twin Peaks like at Christmas time, for example. But we never quite get that experience. We get it by proxy in other works that are sort of connected to Twin Peaks. We can imagine how it would be. This is one example, but also uh, Wise Guy, which I discussed in my recent conversation with Mark Givens, the show where they did a Twin Peaks spoof uh, that they shot up in like Vancouver or something, where it's just this gorgeously snowy, grimy, uh, small wooded town that is like their own version of Twin Peaks that gives us actually a vision of Twin Peaks we never get to get on the actual show. So I always think of that. Affliction is another example. That's a film I'll be talking about in my archive section next month where it's like this moody mystery in a in a small town where the snow is an essential character. So that's another uh, difference, I guess. Uh, this film also evoked for me something that I discussed with Mark in the Twin Peaks conversations on Hazel Drew, which is... This idea of uh, that Grail Marcus wrote about in his essay book, The Shape of Things to Come, the Sylvan Village and the film noir city. I also discussed this in my Lost in Twin Peaks coverage of Firewalk with me. I'm just so compelled by this idea that Twin Peaks is a fusion of these two very different archetypes, uh, which 
in uh, Mark Given's book on on the Hazel Drew mystery from the early 1900s, this woman who was murdered in a small town that Mark Frost would spend his summers in years later and and he'd hear sort of the ghost stories about her and that helped shape Twin Peaks uh, eventually. She was found on the edge of a pond and everything, just, you know, same thing. And in this book, Murder at Teal's Pond, about Hazel Drew, you learn that she was living and that she had grown up in the country, but she was living in the city, in the city of Troy, New York, where there's this interlocking web of like politicians and pimps and rich people and prostitutes and corrupt ward heels and and the cops and all this stuff going on. And she's the servant girl in the middle of all this. And uh, so you get kind of in Twin Peaks, a town that combines the corrupt noir city and the pristine but spooky uh, small town. And then in uh, Murder at Teal's Pond, you get the sort of separation of those elements, but this one character, this woman who crosses between them and combines them. And then on Dangerous Ground, I think you get the furthest separation of these, where these are two dramatically different worlds with nothing connecting them, except that halfway through the movie, the detective goes from one to the other. But, you know, they almost feel like they belong to two different movies, as I, as I talked about in that review. And so I, I always find it compelling when elements, you know, this is almost in a way what Twin Peaks cinema is all about, taking elements that are connected, looking at the threads that hold them, but also very distinctly at the separations between them and keeping them in mind as two different entities so that you can play with them and combine them in different ways and hold them apart. So I'm obsessed with that type of dichotomy. It sort of runs through all the things I do and always has. And specifically the city country thing. You know, I lived in New York when I was very little, too early to remember, but I suppose it made some sort of subconscious impression upon my memories later. I moved out of there before I was three. We lived in a small town, New Hampshire, and I would always have dreams and sort of associations of the city world and the country world and movies that played with that or music videos like Michelle Gondry's work does this all the time with his stuff with Bjork, where she's going through the city and then she's in the country with the mountains and all of this. That, to me, is just so rich and compelling. I'll link an essay I wrote about that. It's called Cities of, Imag- Cities of the Imagination that I wrote about a year and a half before I wrote the uh, On Dangerous Ground review. So you can keep exploring that idea. Carl Jung talked about it a lot. And, of course, Jung had those ideas about the shadow self and the anima that I reference in On Dangerous Ground. So we're making all these connections here between three or four or five different works at this point, not just Twin Peaks and On Dangerous Ground, which is uh, appropriate in a way because this will probably be, uh, you know, for the public listening to this, you're getting many more Twin Peaks cinema episodes. But for the patrons who've been getting this for several years, this is uh, the last one I'm going to record for a while. So you're listening to this in January 2022. It's in some ways, even though I have one scheduled for the next month that I recorded a while back, this is sort of my farewell in terms of behind the scenes to uh, to this format. So it seems it seems appropriate to be wandering like this through all of those connections. But uh, so this idea that like the city is oneself and the country is another in on dangerous ground, I think the the thing that strikes me in relation to Twin Peaks is how Cooper, when he's talking to Albert, he says, you know, this is a place where someone's death actually means something. And then he says to Diane, I'm going to look into real estate here. Like he wants to move to Twin Peaks. Now, of course, this is the place where ultimately he will he will fall. But he needs like there's something 
something about Twin Peaks, and I think this is true of the work itself, is, is speaking as somebody who spent now close to a decade sort of wandering in this world, is there, it, it can take you deep into a darkness. It can also sort of deliver you a more God's eye view in some ways than you get with many other works where you can sort of stand on the peak of the mountain and look down over everything and not just see it as one sweeping landscape, but know each place and its little details and what it, what it can offer you. And I think coming here for uh, the detective, especially the fact that uh, it's not, again, it's not totally clustered in with woods. It's like an open space under the open sky, gorgeous photography in this film. I should note that I haven't, you know, I've, I've kind of alluded to that, but haven't sort of said it directly. There's just wonderful landscapes here. And it's, I see it as sort of part of that genre of like rural crime films that you sometimes see around the late forties. White heat is another one with, with Jimmy Cagney where it's taking this urban world and it's putting it out into the wilderness, into like the ground of the Western, like where the American mythos is. Um, these these two myths of like the West and the city and how they play off of each other. And often a noir presents a very romanticized version of the dirty city where it's almost something you long for, certainly like the Raymond Chandler works, something like Murder My Sweet uh, based on Farewell My Lovely with Dick Powell as uh, Philip Marlowe. There's just a beauty to that depiction of the seamy noir underworld that makes you long for it in the same way you might long for the open country in a Western. But On Dangerous Ground doesn't really do that. It's more of like a unpleasant saturation in a kind of crowded misery and uh, angst. There's like, there's no, it's, I've used this comparison before. I've talked about it with relation to Blue Velvet and, and other things where there's a sense of like, it's not a contrast between two different kind of emotional states or two different flavors of like a sort of brooding dark uh, feeling. It's a contrast between that deep feeling and something which is almost more like a lack of feeling, like a ugly, uh, ashy kind of taste that you get in these noir scenes that, that I, I really quite like in the context of this movie and how it sets up that contrast so nicely. Now out in the country, in addition to kind of the openness of it, there's also a sense of of, uh, it's not just an openness in terms of geography. It's an openness in terms of like time. Like there's long pauses. There's few people, fewer people you come across. There's the sounds of nature. There's that quiet. So there's, there's really like an overall mood that makes its impression on you. And the, the character that Ida Lupino plays here, Mary, I think she is in some ways almost like a log lady character. She's not cranky like the log lady, but she lives this isolated life. She has this wisdom to offer and they have to come to her with patience and slow down and hear what she has to say to kind of get the, to, to get their bearings and actually in both cases in Twin Peaks and in On Dangerous Ground to solve that mystery. I think thematically where this connects to Twin Peaks most richly and where all of the Nicholas Ray films that uh, I'm discussing for Twin Peaks Cinema, um, you know, The Rebel Without a Cause and Bigger Than Life and even some others that I don't connect explicitly to Twin Peaks but still have this spirit like in a lonely place 
there's this feeling of wounded uh, masculinity where there's a potential for violence and threat and also this vulnerability that kind of come together in these characters. And what that really uh, makes me think of in regard to Twin Peaks is Leland Palmer. And I find it fascinating how Leland is essentially a fusion of two characters in On Dangerous Ground. The, the violent youth who murders this young woman out of a sort of psychopathic rage and sense of possession. Um, he doesn't talk so much about possession, I guess, but that he wants her to smile and she stopped smiling when she saw him. So he made her smile. It's kind of awful. You know, we don't know specifically if he assaulted her. It's kind of implied, but certainly he, he killed her and uh, left her there in the snow, just like, you know, Hazel Drew and Laura Palmer were killed. This film doesn't talk at all about the victim. It's not really about that part of the crime. It's more about the detective and the killer and also the grieving family member. So as I said, I don't think I finished the thought there. Leland is a combination of this youth and also the the father, the angry, vengeful father who is sort of driven mad by his grief and does rash, irresponsible things uh, in the name of avenging this innocent daughter who was killed. And I think that's such an interesting idea in Twin Peaks to take those characters and combine them together. You know, at the end, the Ward Bond character suddenly becomes compassionate. Oh my God, he's just a boy. He picks him up, carries him in his arms, this killer of his daughter. And we see something like that in Leland's own death scene in uh, episode 16 of Twin Peaks that this grief-stricken father and the lost little boy who is a killer, are in some ways two sides of that same coin. It's sort of disturbing but compelling idea that that uh, Twin Peaks makes explicit, which is more uh, loose and implicit in On Dangerous Ground. So with the end of this film, uh, it has that somewhat forced happy ending, which, as I said, I, I kind of like because I can read it as a fantasy. I actually feel similarly about the end of Taxi Driver, the sort of Roger Ebert theory that it's in Travis Bickle's head has always made way more sense to me, even though I don't think that's what the writer intended or the director or anybody, but it just sort of plays much more naturally that way. Um, this idea that he goes back to uh, Mary and this time she embraces him. Nothing, you know, nothing more is said, but the, almost the fact that he came back, like there was a test to see if she drove him away, would he just keep going or would he know better and come back and they would reconcile and now they're together and integrating these different parts of the personality if you want to read it psychologically and all that. But uh, however you read it, it is very reminiscent of how Twin Peaks as it currently exists winds up with these characters of Cooper and Laura, these different sides that seem to somehow like, I don't know that Laura needs Cooper, but Cooper needs something about Laura. He needs to understand what happened to her. He thinks he needs that feeling of being the rescuer who swoops in and saves her, although he's taking her back to her father. And uh, so you have, in both cases, a sort of a happy ending that seems like it might be a fantasy. And in Twin Peaks, that's underscored when she is whisked away and then he has to go back and find Carrie and try to take her back. And none of it works out. It's, it, you know, he's he's kind of trying to do at that point what Robert Ryan does at the end of On Dangerous Ground what the Wilson detective Wilson does of, you know, turning the car around, going back and trying again to pull her out. And this time it's going to work. And instead this time it works even less 
than it did the first time. Now she's an older woman coming to this house where nobody lives who recognizes her and, you know, what year is it anyways? Finally, On Dangerous Ground exists, I think, somewhere between Twin Peaks, uh, part 17 and 18, and the last film that I discussed for uh, Twin Peaks Cinema, Mysterious Skin. In Mysterious Skin, we have two characters who are totally separated and need to come together and, and kind of integrate their experience, and they are able to do that at the end of that film. In this film, On Dangerous Ground, we have two characters who don't quite seem like they're able to do that, and then maybe there's a sense of either he comes back and is able to do it or there's a fantasy or something, but it's sort of ambiguous. And then in parts 17 and 18 of Twin Peaks, we have two characters who resolutely cannot do that. Um, first, Laura's whisked away. Then she's not even apparently, this person isn't apparently even Laura and Cooper's not quite himself. And they have this long car ride where they have nothing to say to each other and there's nothing at the house for them to see. So you have these kind of three steps, these three levels of this idea of two characters resembling sort of fragments of the same psyche and whether they are or are not able to come together. And maybe Twin Peaks will always end that way with them unable to come together. But uh, it still feels to me like maybe there's a story to be told there. That's it for this episode. You can uh, support this podcast by rating, reviewing, and subscribing on Apple Podcasts. You can also support this work as a patron on patreon.com slash Lost in the Movies. Ray's Haunted 50s will continue in August with perhaps the film of the 50s youth generation. Uh, Really the first mega film in some ways to deal with the American teenager as like a subject. I I, I think you could argue that because uh, prior to this point, you know, there's a whole sociological study of it. Were the kids mostly working on the farm? Were they getting jobs, marrying really young? Did they really have an adolescence and so forth? I think in the post-war period, there develops this kind of interim of a lot of people graduating high school and uh, they're growing up and they're sort of struggling with themselves and all of that. And out of this, you get so much of American pop culture and uh, Twin Peaks is a part of that. So Here's a taste of that next episode to come. You're tearing me apart! What? You, you say one thing, he says another, and everybody changes back again! Girls don't love their father. Since when? Since I got to be 16? Stop that! I love you, Jim. I really mean it.